0: Good morning. Uh, hopefully, uh, you, you have uh, some notes from a couple of weeks ago when I taught. Um, if you don't, uh, there's some extra copies on the corner of the, the table there, and then also there's some additional notes this morning that say the concept of obedience as it relates to assurance of salvation. So if I if I didn't get those to you, there's some more of those on the corner of the table there as, as well, and. Uh, so just to begin our, our thinking, let's turn to the Gospel of Matthew, uh, chapter 7. Matthew, chapter 7, and verses 21 to 23. Matthew, chapter 7, towards the end of the Sermon on the Mount, and beginning in verse 21, down through verse 23. Uh, Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, 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 will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father, who is in heaven, will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name cast out demons, and your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. And let us pray, shall we? Father, thank you so much this morning for uh, each one that is here. I I thank you for the privilege we have to uh, come together on uh, the first day of the week and assemble together as a body of believers and to... um, encourage one another in in the faith, the most holy faith that was once delivered to the saints. We thank you for the the glory of that faith that it involves uh, the blessed eternal life that is only found in your Son. We we thank you that you have sought us and and, and drawn us to thyself through your precious Spirit. And I thank you this morning for just the the time together and uh, pray that uh, as we look into your word, it would be honoring to thee and and truly uh, profitable uh, to our own thinking process. In particular, as it relates to this uh, this issue of assurance of salvation, I pray that to, you would be pleased to um, use your precious word, apply it to our own souls in a way that is honoring to thyself and uh, applicable to us uh, at this point in our, our walk with thee. And I, I would again pray for the help of the Holy Spirit uh, during these moments together that uh, just to convey your Your truth and your word in a way that is um, reflective of Uh, your intention. And again, I would ask that you would be pleased to enlighten all of our hearts and and give us insight, give us understanding as we consider your word together uh, at this time. So we we commit our time to the, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so continuing on in this, uh, this theme of uh, assurance of salvation, I wanted just to take a, a couple of minutes. It was a couple of weeks since we were together, so I just wanted to review uh, a little bit, and then we'll kind of uh, advance our thinking uh, a bit. We're, we're talking here about the 18th chapter of the Confession of Faith, entitled uh, Of Assurance, Of Grace, and Salvation. It consists of four paragraphs and as, as indicated before, when you talk about assurance of salvation, obviously it's a, it's a very serious theme because the eternal salvation of our souls. It's hard to imagine anything that has more uh, importance or significance uh, than that. And um, you'll, we, we looked at the second page of your notes and indicated that the question we're talking about here is can I know that I am saved? Can I legitimately know that I am a Christian? And indicated that uh, R.C. Sproul was helpful here in articulating four different positions. Uh, There are people who are unsaved and know that they are unsaved. And in position two, there are people who are saved but do not know they are saved. Uh, The confession deals with that in paragraph four. Um, Position three, uh, there are people who are saved and know that they are saved. um, And that's dealt Mm -hmm. with in in the second part of paragraph one. And then position four, there are people who are not saved but confidently believe that they are saved, and that's dealt with with in the first part of paragraph one. So we did just kind of a quick overview of these these paragraphs. And the first one is really divided into two sections, the reality of false assurance and then the certainty of true assurance, and paragraph two, the basis of true assurance, and paragraph three, the attaining of true assurance, and paragraph four, hindrances uh, to the experience of assurance. And then we uh, kind of centered our thinking around some um, observations. And uh, one of them, we just noticed that uh, the book of 1 John uh, is referenced over and over again um, in this this part of the confession. So we just tried to make the point. It's a really good place to go to read yourself and seek the Lord's mind in terms of this whole issue of assurance of salvation. Made reference to an older uh, commentator. I'm not even sure it's available anymore. It's called Tests of Life by Robert Law. And... um, I, I, I pulled from a work by James Montgomery Boyce, and, and he breaks this down into three tests. Uh, one is, um, and there were kind of three main categories. One is the, the doctrinal test, of, uh, and that would and that would really include a persuasion that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. Um, and then, secondly, would be a, a moral test. Um, and, and the main thought there is that those who are converted, those who are saved, will increasingly uh, lead a righteous life. Now, a text that I didn't uh, talk about last time, that connection. Turn if you would to First Corinthians chapter 6. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter six and verses nine through eleven, um, and this fits in with the, the moral test as it relates to assurance of salvation. And these verses, I just would share them with you because I have found them uh, just to be very helpful and short compass, very clear uh, about what the gospel does to somebody, how it affects somebody. So if you look at uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning in verse 9, and Paul writes here, "...do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves." nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And then verse 11 says, Such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the spirit of our God. So I, I find these verses to be very helpful because... You're unsaved, and and the pattern there is unrighteous living. There's a specific particular point in time where the Spirit of God does a work, and regeneration takes place, and a person becomes a new creature in Christ, and there's this moral and spiritual transformation. So I I think think that's a a helpful text as it relates to this this theme of the, the uh, the moral test. Well, then the third test we considered is the social test, and that especially has to do with love for brothers and sisters in Christ, in 1 John chapter 2, verses 10 and 11 are especially helpful verses. 1 John chapter 2, verses 10 and 11, the one who loves his brother abides in the light and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But the one who hates his brother is in the darkness and walks, excuse me, and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. So that would be the, the social test. And then another point we made in, in, with respect to uh, the assurance of salvation um, is, the, um, is the centrality and the importance of the, the Holy Spirit. Uh, and there, there are several references here to uh, the ministry of the Holy Spirit, and, and that's a central part of it uh, as well. Um, and then the, the other thing that we really focused on was the priority of the conscience. And I had several verses here uh, towards the end of your notes that deal with the conscience. So that's another central feature of assurance of salvation. So there's kind of the, 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 the quick uh, review. Um, all right. So what I want to do this morning um, is especially uh, focus uh, for a few moments on John chapter 7 In verses 21 to 23. But you will notice on the second page of your notes, uh, right after position four, there, number three, right at the bottom. So this is the second page of your notes. Uh, Sam Waldron observed the historical background of this chapter uh, grows out of controversy. God overrules controversy for the purpose of clarifying the truth of his church. Uh, With reference to the subject of assurance, There were at least two errors which our spiritual forefathers sought to overthrow in this chapter. The first was the Roman Catholic denial of assurance of salvation. Roman Catholics taught that assurance could only come by special revelation to select saints, but was dangerous for the ordinary Christian. In contrast to this error, the Confession continually asserts that assurance is possible and beneficial. The second error was that of antinomian Protestants. This perversion was marked by by claims to a high assurance of salvation with without corresponding holiness of life. Against this the confession, excuse me, the confession pervasively asserts the danger of a false assurance and the inconsistency of a sinful course of life with a genuine assurance. And you notice the reference here that I would invite you to turn to that is very applicable, Ephesians chapter 5 and verses 5 and 6. Ephesians chapter 5 and verses 5 and 6. And here the Apostle Paul writes, um, and it's similar in import to what we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, but Paul writes, For this you know with certainty, that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. And then, uh, again, he deals with this this potential of deception. He says, Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Okay, Um, first thought this morning, that number one, uh, there is a, a false assurance of salvation, which unregenerate men sometimes indulge in, in which they are deceived and which shall finally be disappointed. There is a false assurance of salvation, which unregenerate men sometimes indulge in, in which they are deceived and which shall finally be disappointed. Uh, now I begin by reading from uh, Matthew chapter seven, verses twenty-one to twenty-three, and I want to share uh, kind of kind of park on here a little bit. I'm not sure how much further we'll make it in the notes. So I'll bring your notes again next week. Um, if you would. But uh, I, I wanted to just spend a little bit of time here because I, I think this is a really helpful section as it relates to this whole area of assurance of salvation. So I have five thoughts connected with Matthew chapter 7 verses 21 to 23. And, and uh, when, I, when I read those those words, um, the, the first thought is it's very solemn and a very serious section because it's dealing with judgment, it's dealing with eternity. Um, where uh, a point where there's no second chance. So the, the first, the first thought is simply that it's a very solemn section of scripture. Secondly, um, you notice that there are many in this category. Uh, Jesus says in verse 22, Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? In your name cast out demons, in your name perform many miracles. So th- this is a reference to the day of judgment, and, uh, and there are there are many people who are in this category. And you notice back up a little bit in verses 13 and 14, Jesus said, "...entered through the, through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction." And many and there are many who enter through it for the gate is small. And the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. So the, the, the many in these two sections, they don't correspond to one another, but the many in the text that we're looking at is really a subset of the, the many that are on the broad road that lead to destruction because it, it, it's dealing especially with those who are deceived about their standing before the, the being of God. So it's really a, a subset, I believe, of the many that is referred to in those previous verses. Um, The the third thought I would share is that on that day, um, there will be, I don't know exactly how to put it, I have the word shock here, but there will be kind of an eternal shock to the soul because there will be a sudden awareness that one thought he or she was right with God, but they were not. And and the classic passage, you'll see this in your notes here, uh, would be, or a classic passage would be Luke 18 and verse 10, Luke uh, chapter 18 and, and beginning in verse 10. Luke chapter 18, uh, beginning in verse 10. You're familiar with this passage, but um, verse 9 says, He also told them this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven and was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. And Jesus says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified, rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. And I think this section is helpful in this in this respect, that the Pharisee at least represents the person who's totally convinced they are right with God, but they are not. And so he represents that kind of person who, for whatever reason, not biblical reasons, feels like they are in a right relationship with the being of God, but the fact is they, they are not, and so this will be a very shocking kind of day. Uh, there, there are some who take the words, Lord, Lord, that are found in our text, to uh, refer to a statement of orthodoxy, something like uh, James two nineteen even the demons believe in Trumbull d a Carson uh, in his work on matthew brings out there 's just a, a fervency here and I, I think the, the the main point it 's just a kind of desperation on that day, so it 's lord Lord in in the sense of just we really knew you and I think that 's the, the main point that 's being uh, communicated there so okay then number number four um, Is this phrase that Jesus says, I never knew you? He says, I never knew you. John Brown, in his Discourses and Sayings of Our Lord, says the word knew here is used in a somewhat peculiar sense. In the ordinary sense of the word, our Lord knew them all along. Here he writes, uh, it it is used in the sense of uh, acknowledge or approve. Um Leon Morris wrote, he never acknowledged them, he never recognized them as what they claim to be. And John brought us along the same line, says, as in me, as my people. Um, in, in John chapter uh, 10, verse 27, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them. So it's, it's knowledge of them in a, in a saving sense. Now, um, the, the question is, arises, let me get back to the text here. The question arises is... Um, where do these people go wrong? I mean, what was, what was, what was the problem here? And uh, I, I believe the heart of it here is, uh, it's, it's not like in John 10, 27, my sheep hear my voice and I know them. But um, here I, uh, I, I know them. And, and he says, uh, I, I never knew you. But if you go back to John chapter seven, uh, verse 23, and then I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Mm-hmm. You practice lawlessness. I think that's a very helpful phrase here, because it, it means that their life is not practice excuse me it's not characterized by obedience. And so the, the, the fifth point the, the, which is really just stating that more clearly, um, is there was not a, a pattern of obedience. Um, of doing the will of the Father who is in heaven. This is what was absent. Verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. That's the problem. They're not doing the will of the Father who is in heaven. Instead of my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they, they follow me. So uh, the point I would make here is that obedience is, is a great central mark of being a follower of Christ, um, you know, I guess it might be surprising to us um, here that there's, there's people in this category. The ESV Study Bible has, I think, an apt note. Um, Mighty works are not a proof of the Father's will, since they can come from sources other than God, including demons and human contrivances. Mighty works, he writes, are not a proof of the Father's will, since they can come from sources other than God, including demons and human contrivances, and the reference there would be. i to turn to it for a second. Second Thessalonians, chapter two and verse nine. Second Thessalonians, chapter two and verse nine, um, says that one, one who is coming in accord with the activity of Satan and all power and signs and false wonders and with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish. Uh, because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. For this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence, and they will believe what is false. And, but even more so, if you turn for a moment to Matthew chapter 10 and verse 1, Matthew chapter 10 and verse 1, um, because they talk about, well, we, we prophesied in your name, when we cast out demons. Um, Matthew chapter 10 and verse 1. It says, Jesus summoned his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. I'm sure you're ahead of me on this. And, and, and one of those who was able to do that was named Judas. Judas. So that, that's no proof, even doing these supernatural kinds of things, that's no proof that one is, is truly um, a, a child of the king. So um, in our time uh, remaining here, now if you would turn to the notes, the new notes I gave you for today, and just uh, three three headings, three assertions here uh, about how important obedience is in terms of um, assurance of salvation. Um, to put this another way, if you or I, we, we want to search our own heart and ask, am I a truly saved person? Well, the, the, the means of evaluating that is... Do I have a pattern of obedience in my life? We know it's not perfection. We understand that, but nevertheless, do I have a pattern of obedience in my life? Is there, by the help of the Spirit, uh, an ongoing conformity to what I read in Holy Scripture? So that, that that that's where I think it's a help. So three assertions here with respect to um, this particular this particular theme. First of all, it's perpetually taught in the New Testament. Um, it, it, you, we can just sketch a few verses here to show how how much it is taught in the new testament that 's what you have in your notes here um, john fourteen fifteen Jesus said, "If you love me, you will keep my commandments that 's just a straight shot with respect to this. If you love me jesus says this is, this is how you show it if you keep my commandments john fourteen twenty one he who has my commandments and keeps them it, it is he who loves me." and he who loves me shall be loved by my father and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. It's just interesting to note here how closely connected loving God or loving Christ is with obedience to his word. You really can't separate the two. Uh, John 14:23 Jesus answered and said to him If anyone loves me he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our abode with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words. And the word which you hear is not mine, and the Father's who sent me. And then John fifteen ten, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. Um, turn if you would to Acts chapter. I have this, the text here, Acts five twenty nine. Turn if you would there to Acts chapter five. I want to begin at verse twenty seven. Acts chapter five in the beginning at verse twenty seven. Acts five twenty seven, uh, when they they brought them they stood them before the council. The high priest questioned them, saying, "We gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name, and yet you filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and intend to bring this man's blood upon us." Then verse twenty nine, Peter said to the apostles, "Excuse me," but Peter and the apostles answered, "We must obey God rather than men." I, I think this is, I find this to be very helpful because Peter. I don't know if you, you tend to feel like you're drawn a little bit more to Peter than the Apostle Paul because he's just more of a regular guy. You know, he just kind of bumbles along, you know. But but here you see Peter at his best. And, and the pressure is, is turned up. And what does he say? We have to obey God rather than men. This is, this is assurance of salvation. I, I have to obey God rather than men. Well, 2 Corinthians 10, 5, We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. We're taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And then Philippians chapter 2 and verse 12, which as you know is a book about joy and experiencing true joy. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So the Apostle Paul's committing them for a pattern of obedience. And then a second Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 14 Um, If anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of that man and do not associate with him so that he may be put to shame. And then another passage um, would be Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord uh, for this is right. I was kind of debating here, but um, turn if you would back to, because this is such a classic uh, passage passage on this particular theme. Turn back, if you would, to First Samuel, chapter 15. 1 Samuel, uh, chapter 15. and um, I, We'll, we'll kind of cruise through here, but First Samuel, chapter 15, um, and we're going to try to make it down to verse 23 or 22, but in verse 1, 1 Samuel, chapter 15, Samuel said to Saul, uh, the Lord sent me to anoint you as king over his people, over Israel. Now, therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Verse 2, for Samuel 15. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel, uh, how he set himself against him on the way while he was coming up from Egypt. Now go, here's the command. Go and strike Amalek and utterly destroy all that he has. Do not spare him, but put to death both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. I then Saul some of the people, numbered them in... Um, Numbered them in Talim, 200,000 foot soldiers, 10,000 men of Judah. Saul came to the city of Amalek and set an ambush in the valley. Saul said to the Kenites, Go depart, go, go down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them, for you showed kindness to all the sons of Israel when they came up from Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. So Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as you go to Shur, um, which is uh, east of Egypt. He captured Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive, utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. Sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep, the oxen, the fatlings, the lambs, and all that was good, and were not willing to destroy them utterly, but everything despised and worthless they utterly destroyed. Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel, saying, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he turned back from following me, has not carried out my commands. And Samuel was distressed and cried out to the Lord all night. And Samuel rose early in the morning to meet Saul, and it was told Samuel, saying, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a a monument for himself, then turned and proceeded down to Gilgal. And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed are you of the Lord. I have carried out the command of the Lord. Then verse 14, Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen which I hear? And Saul said, Well, they have brought them from the Amalekites for the people, spared the best of the sheep and oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God but the rest we have utterly destroyed. Then Samuel said to Saul, wait, let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. And he said to him, speak. And Samuel said, is it not true that you were little in your own eyes? You were made the head of the tribes of Israel and the Lord anointed you king over Israel and the Lord sent you on a mission and said, go and utterly destroy the sinners. The Amalekites fight against them until they are exterminated. Why then did you you not obey the voice of the Lord? but rushed upon the spoil and did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Then Saul said to Samuel, I did obey the voice of the Lord and went on the mission on which the Lord sent me and have brought back Agag the king of Amalek and have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. Verse 21, but the people took some of the spoil, sheep, and oxen, the choices of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God and Gilgal. And Samuel said, and here it comes, Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice." and to heed in the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and insubordination as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. That's really, I think, a classic section on this whole area of obedience. And what really helps our thinking process is here, uh, obedience... And disobedience is associated with rebellion and, and the sin of, divina, of divination. So uh, obedience is really a central part of the Christian life. It's an evidence of, um, of being converted. Well, secondly, um, in, in your notes here, obedience is, is uh, consistently modeled by the person of Christ. It's reflected in the life of Christ. John 4.24, Jesus said to him, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Uh, John 5, 30, I can do nothing on my own initi- initiative as I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Uh, John six thirty eight. I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And then Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 8, although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. So this was the, the pattern of our Lord's life was obedience to the will of the Father very clearly. Well, then one final thought in this, in this connection, and uh, I, I know I've touched on this before in different ways, but becoming a Christian is an act of obedience. Uh, becoming a Christian is a submitting to the lordship of the person of Christ. Just some texts here that I think are pretty clear in this respect. 1 Peter 1.22, since you have in obedience to the truth purified your soul's For a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. So it's it's looking back to the particular point in time when they became a Christian. And he refers to that as obedience to the truth. You purified your souls. Then in Acts 16.31, a a passage that you're familiar with, um, this is to the Philippian jailer. This is a command. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved in your household. So that's in the imperative, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a command then john three thirty six, he who believes in the son has eternal life but he who does not obey the son shall not see life but the wrath of god abides on him and so here believing is presented in contrast to disobedience so the one who who is not believed is in a state of disobedience to the being of god well then second thessalonians 1 8 dealing out retribution the final day of judgment dealing out retribution to those who do not know god to those who do not obey the gospel of jesus christ and then just two more passages here. Uh, Romans chapter two and verse 8, "But to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath and indignation." And then First Peter 4:17, "It is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? So the Christian life begins with submission and obedience to the person of Christ. And it's, and it's a pattern. And as that is a pattern, it assures our souls that we belong to Christ and he is our Lord. And let us pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your word. I, I pray that you would take what we have considered and, and apply it to our own souls. We understand that we are dependent on your pure and precious Holy Spirit, but we also know the glory of the gospel as we are we are saved unto good works by the power and the energy and the working of the Holy Spirit working in us and through us. I pray uh, you would take what we have considered this morning and apply it to our own hearts. I pray it would be uh, instructive to us and I, I pray as well that uh, our time between now and the morning service would be uh, precious that we would enjoy fellowship with one another and as we Gathered together this morning, we pray that you would be exalted and you would be lifted up in our midst. So we commit uh, this time to thee, and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.